Right, today I am near Swindon, not far from Lambourne, I've been told, with Jonathan Powell. Thanks very much for uh, giving us some time this morning, Jonathan, to talk to us. Um, now, you're probably the first interviewee of mine that's seen his work published in Chinese. <laughs> so, uh, Champion's story travelled far. It was published all over the world. I've got a copy just behind you there now in Chinese. Of course, it starts at the back. Um, it was a fantastic story and I had a ringside seat for the whole time from when Bob first became ill to when he spent all that time at the Royal Marsden in London to saying he was going to come back and win the Grand National, which we all said, look, be sensible. Just if you can live, you'll be fine. He said, I don't want to live if I can't ride again and win the Grand National. He actually kept saying it, and unbelievably, he did it. It was the best day of my life. It was wonderfully emotional. And he has done so much for so many people in hospital from then to now. His own cancer trust has raised over 15 million. Initially, the money went on research into finding a cure for testicular cancer, which is what he had. They pretty much cracked that now. You'd be very unlucky to get it, and even more unlucky to die from it now. So all the money's now going into research at his two units. He's got one in the Royal Marsden and one at Norwich University into research for finding a cure for prostate cancer. So his work is still going on. He's still raising money. And he's a beacon of hope for a lot of people who've been ill over, over since, ever since he won the Grand National in 1981. So from a career perspective, that was uh, you hit the ground running. Was that your first book? It was my second book. Uh, the first book I did was on a lovely horse called Monksfield, which was full of improbable stories about Irish people. Uh, Monksfield cost less than £1,000. His trainer thought he looked smashing Des McDonough, but in fact, he, he, he was a winder, but his front legs went like that, which is, technically means that when they race, they won't be any good. Well, we know he was brilliant, and he won his first race on the flat, paying something like 650 to 1 on the tote, he then got beaten 13 times as a three-year-old on the flat and developed into one of the great champion hurdlers in a golden age. Night Nurse, Sea Pigeon, so many good horses. Uh, and he won the champion hill twice. And he was second in it twice. I loved doing the book. They were brilliant to me from day one, Des and Helen McDonough. And it's so sad that she died the other day. She was a pathfinder. She was very much involved in getting female riders to be accepted. And she did ride a winner on him towards the end of his career, which was lovely. Okay, just going back to, um, we'll talk about some of your other books as well in a minute. Um, but The Champions was used as the basis for the film, well, sorry, the book was used as a basis of the film Champions. Now that was a you know, big news, say, all over the world. Was that, did it bring the riches that uh, you'd expect? <laughs> Not really. Um, what happened was that, at the time, Bob and I signed the contract with Galance, Victor Galance. He hadn't ridden for a year, he'd been ill. So they took a bit of a punt that he would recover and ride. And, that, and I had written the book with the last chapter to be the Grand National on Alden Eaty in 1981. Well, of course, he won it to everybody's delight. And, and then suddenly the last chapter became three last chapters. And they rushed it out in about inside a month, and it became a bestseller everywhere, and somebody eventually bought the film rights. But I thought they did the film pretty well. John Hurt played Bob, and the, the race scenes were pretty accurate, but for whatever reason, it didn't go. It wasn't successful here, and it wasn't successful, more crucially, in America. 
I think perhaps people found the long scenes of Bob in hospital being very ill, getting very depressed. Um, I think they found that too harrowing. I, I, it's, my, it's my only explanation for why it didn't work, because the story's true and it's wonderfully inspiring. So the answer is neither of us made a great deal of money out of it, but the story is as strong today as it ever was. And I put it on a par with stories like the great Douglas Bader from the Second World War, who people will know, crashed his plane before the war, lost both his legs, came back to be one of the top Spitfire pilots in the Second World War, and was eventually captured and escaped <laughs> without any legs from a couple of prisoner of war camps. I think it's that strong. I had no, I'm idea, biased. That it, I had no idea that it wasn't a success, the film. I, I just always assumed it was. Well, it wasn't a financial success. Is what you, you asked me, did we make a lot of money? No, not really. Uh, we, it was wonderful to be involved, and Bob is very committed to raising money to this day. And it's a great thing. Here we are, 42 years afterwards, and he's alive and well and enjoying himself, which is fabulous. Now, as well as Bob Champions, uh, you've written autobiographies for Paul Nichols, David Nicholson, and Frankie Dutour. I've written autobiographies in inverted commas. Here. <laughs> I mean, what are the mechanics for ghost writing? Do you have to sort of sit down with a bottle of wine and a recorder and uh, just let them ramble? Uh, with David Nicholson, yes, definitely a bottle of wine. But um, doing Monkfield and Bob Champions book sort of taught me how you should do it. My modus operandi is always to go and see the people, but also to go and see all their friends and colleagues to get different stories on them. I went to see lots of friends of Frankie, like Jason Weaver, and he would tell me things. And John Gosden was very helpful. And you get a different perspective. And, and then you would ask the, the subject, i.e. Frankie or David Nicholson, what about so-and-so? And with David Nicholson, the worse the story other people told me about him, the more he enjoyed the fact that he behaved badly. Frankie as well. Oh, yes, I remember that. Um, he, he was great to deal with, but he's got a very short attention span, as I'm sure you've noticed. So I, I worked out that the best time to get him was about seven in the morning, out walking with the tape recorder running, and he's not listening to a phone and he's not distracted by all the other things that, in, uh, that he enjoys in life. And he was great, and my wife Charlotte and I stayed with him for 10 days in Dubai, and we did lots of sessions there. He was lovely. He was really nice to deal with. I stayed with him sometimes in Newmarket. He's a terrific cook. He liked a bottle of wine in the evening, and he's very normal like that. And he found the discipline of not being allowed to have a drink and not being able to eat very hard in the last few years. And I think going to America and not traveling, just having to base himself in one place, is great for him, and it wouldn't surprise me if he keeps going for another couple of years. And um, Paul Nichols, what was, uh, how did that work? Paul Nichols has been a mate. Uh, years ago when I was working for the BBC, I got to know him. He and his then first wife, who's now married to Oliver Sherwood, were both working for David Barons, and she had a horse that was declared for the Grand National, and they both think, seemed to think they were going to ride it. So I did this interview with them about 10 days before the race and they were arguing on camera about whether she was going to ride it or he was going to ride it. It made great TV, but unfortunately, for a reason I can't remember, it, at the last minute it didn't run. But Paul and I hit it off then. and we just He's just very straightforward and easy to deal with. Um, he's, he's extraordinary, really. I mean, he's been training now for over 30 years. He's as ambitious and keen. He's like a little boy in the sweet shop. Every autumn, he goes around his horses and he just loves what he's doing. He wants to be every bit as successful 
in 10 years' time as he is now. He's got a great team behind him. They all follow him. And he's just single-minded to the point of obsession. But he's good fun well, and he's also extremely generous. Now, all that sounds quite straightforward, but what about writing the stories of horses? I mean, where did you start with uh, Desert Orchid? Did you start at the beginning, the breeder? Well, I was blessed. Uh, David Ellsworth has been a mate forever. I think he's a genius. I think he's the best dual-purpose trainer there's ever been. He can be tricky. He, he could, as Mick Shannon would say, he could fall out in an empty, in an empty room. He just, but he's, got, he's a genius with horses. I, I had friends who had horses with him. I, I, a friend of mine owned Rhyme and Reason, and I suggested he sent him to David Ellsworth. So David knows that and remembers it. Of course, he came on and won the Grand National. So I've, I've been going to David Ferris Yards for many years, and he just is, again, a lovely guy to be involved with, and his stories are just sensational. So I knew him, I knew Colin Brown, I knew Simon Sherwood, I knew the owners, the Burridges, and what happened was he won the Gold Cup on that snowy, dreadful day when he got up and he beat Yahoo in the Gold Cup. And a publisher came on to me and said, could you do this, could you do a really nice picture book? I said, sure, I said, when do you want it? Or oh, tomorrow. <laughs> So I did about 35,000 words in three weeks. And it was a lovely pictorial story of his unusual background. He was out of a hunting mare. Uh, he, was, he was by Grey Mirage, who was barely a miler on the flat. And he stayed all day. And he was just a wonderfully charismatic racehorse who captured the imagination of people. And I was also interested that when, when we were... Uh... You gave me some notes before the interview that you said you tidied up a couple of books. Um, autobiographies of Jenny Pittman and Patrick Veach. I mean, how does that process differ? <laughs> well, Jenny, Jenny managed to fall out with the press, or they managed to fall out with her, with just about everybody. But I, I never fell out with her, which was quite a surprise to me. But she, she was great to interview on the BBC. She, when the cameras were running, she switched on and she was very good and forthright. And she rang me up one day as the blue said, would I do her autobiography. I said, sure. At that stage, I was working for the Sunday Express. It fitted in well. And I did lots of interviews and then had written about five chapters and suddenly the Express became seven days a week. So not, not only was I working for the Sunday, I was working for the Daily. And it soon became clear I didn't really have the time to devote to doing Jenny Justice. So I rang her up, thought she'd explode, but she understood. And she got two or three other people to finish it. And then I left the Express and she heard about it and rang me and said, could you, look, we've, I've got to a certain point, can you finish it? So she sent me what had been done and I tidied it up and added three more chapters. Um, she, it's a good story, Jenny, I mean, punchy. And what about Patrick Veach? Much the same, he contacted me out of the blue. I, I was aware of him, I'd met him once. I didn't know the half of it. I didn't know he had to go into hiding when he was threatened by a guy who was threatening to do away with him. And again, he had written it himself, and I tidied it up. And I, I find that very messy. I like to start from scratch with a blank sheet of paper. If you start with something that's already, already been written by somebody else, oh, it's pain, painstaking. But I tidied it up, and he was pretty happy with it. Um, and his story is fascinating. I'm not sure we got all the true stories about him, but he's a fascinating guy who, who found a way of making serious bucks as a punter and getting on. And of course, that's a key bit, as you understand. Getting on is the difficulty now. 
Now, Patrick's a, a feared professional punter, but um, you've had some success in that sphere yourself. Well, I'm, 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 I was never a professional, but I was lucky enough to be very close to it. And I've, I've had some great touches. The best one was on Nashwan in the derby. I backed him after he won it as a two-year-old at Ascot. And then I heard about that. I backed him for the derby the previous year. And then we heard about this sensational gallop at West Ilsley on, the, on one Saturday morning. It was the morning of the Greenham, I think. And suddenly he was being back for the Guineas. It never occurred to me that he was a Guineas horse. No, I don't think it occurred to them. But as you know, he won this gallop by 100 yards and they decided he was going to go for the Guineas as well. And I piled on. I managed to get a few quid on, not much, at 33 for the, for the Guineas. And it just collapsed. And, of course, he won the Guineas and then won the Derby. And, um, yeah, that paid for the conservatory here. But I'm not, a, I'm not a professional, never have been. I haven't been brave enough. But I did have a lovely touch in the jackpot in 1993 um, it was on Cambridge Day and funnily enough I was working at Chepstow that day for the BBC but I suggested to a chum we did it he's, he's a QC and he funnily enough he later was employed by the BHA until recently as an appeal judge he said well you do the work and we'll go halves well it was a huge jackpot so we did it to 10p so we laid out about £100 each at 10p and it paid to a pound 273,000. So we, we split 27,000. Um, and it was a typical tricky jackpot. Cambridgeshire was a hard race. There was an impossible handicap in the first race. And the other races weren't that tricky. They were conditioned races, so you had a chance that the first or second favourite would win. And where we got lucky, I think we put 10 in the, 10 in the first race, and that was won by a 25 to 1 shot. He was in there, and we had the winner of the Cambridgeshire, which was favourite on the day, seven to one. The other ones weren't that difficult, so it was it was getting through that first race, and we got lucky. Hey, Jonathan, we've not we've not talked about your uh, your career, the journalism career yet, but I'm assuming that that can go parallel without causing too much disruption with punting. So has punting been a big big part of your life, of your career? It became fun. I, I always enjoyed anti post betting rather than sitting down and going through a 0-70 handicap, which has never been my thing. Uh, I, I, I felt that I was a good enough judge when you see a, a really smart two-year-old win or a really smart hurdler win, you think, ooh, yeah. And I, I did very well for a long time backing anti-post. Nowadays on the flat, it's completely different because if you see a nice two-year-old win and it's trained by Godolphin or John Gosner or anybody, yes, it's decent, but it might end up going... To, or Aiden in particular, it could end up going to America instead of running in the Guineas. It could go and run in the Irish Guineas or the French Guineas. So you, it's very hard to get on because the bookies run. They're terrified now. They're not proper book, bookmakers. I knew bookmakers when bookmakers. I knew Cyril Steen quite well. I knew Joe Coral, who founded Corals, and I played snooker with him on a couple of occasions. He would turn in his grave at what Corals are doing now to punters and other companies like it. It's just embarrassing. It's a joke. They don't, they don't lay a bet. They're run by hard-nosed bottom-line accountants. And any punter who's any good gets squeezed out. You can't get on with them. Most of, them, either you, most of my friends either get shut out or closed down. It's, it's an absolute joke. And the real problem is that when I started, which is admittedly a long time ago, you could only bet on greyhound racing 
for horse racing and racing horse racing was about 97 percent of that now you can bet on anything anywhere in the world uh, you know who's going to be the next prime minister who's going to do this who's going to do that and every year racing's margin drops the percentage of money bet on racing it gets lesser and lesser compared to other sports because everything's 12 months of the year now You've been friends with some clever people as well. And they, so I was very interested. Somebody that I used to hear about when I first started back in the very early 90s in the West Country, but I never saw an action, was a guy called Alan Archibald. He's almost disappeared into the mists of time. You're <laughs> going to drag him back now because you, you were friends with him. Oh, bless him. Um, he and I owned a horse that won at um, Salisbury one day, trained by David Ellsworth. And we probably should have. She was a... She was a real madam. She won on a second start. She was quite well bred. We were offered money for her. We should have sold her, but his wife didn't want to sell her. And of course, she, she came, became a bit of a cow and we ended up selling her for button. But no matter, we had a lot of fun with her, ridden by John Williams, who, who, who had been a jump jockey and came back to being a flat jockey towards the end of his career. Uh, Alan died about four years ago and it was really sad. He was such a good mate. He knew everybody in racing. He knew, he knew the jockeys, he knew the trainers. He used to run a tennis tournament down on, at Bournemouth, the famous Bournemouth Tennis Club. And it was like a who's who racing. You know, John Franken would be there, Toby Balding, Ian Balding, Paul Cole, a few journalists like myself and Colin McKenzie. And he just knew everybody. And he definitely was getting his card marked by various people. And he was very close to Michael Tabor. And his funeral in, in Bournemouth, I'd never been to a Jewish funeral before. I found it absolutely fascinating. It was sad, but it was fascinating to do. It was like a scene from The Godfather. All these people I knew from racing and I was, Harry Redknapp was there. He had been a pal of Alan's for years. And it was quite extraordinary. It was a lovely service and I've never forgotten it. It was quite an education for me. And I miss talking to Alan. He used to, he worked in the markets. He used to sell cloth and fabrics, of very good quality, but he worked Salisbury markets, he worked Newton Abbott markets, Exeter markets. So he would do those markets on race days, you see, and then go off to the races. And he got to know everybody. And when David Ellsworth, even before he got a training license, David trained about 10 minutes from here. He was the assistant trainer to Colonel Ricky Valance. And they were done by the jockey club. Whether they stopped the horse or not, I don't really care. But the fact is, they took Valance's license away. So David was unemployed and pretty much unemployable because he was warned off. And he, he worked with Alan on the markets for six months, so they became great mates, so that was another very good contact for him. So Alan used to get on, and he would get good prices, but he was getting his car marked from all over the place. You'd say now that he was, you know, guys were punting to him, and probably, that still happens to this day. Inside information, it keeps, it keeps the market going, doesn't it? A whiff of scandal was always somewhere in racing. So he would have, he would have been out of the spotlight for a while then? At the end, yeah, he was out of the spotlight, but he was playing, and he was playing quite big. We would talk most days, and you know he had an opinion, and he he was getting his car marked. And were there, um, I mean, especially in your heyday, there was the betting ring and racecourses were full of colourful, larger-than-life characters. Are there any others that you've been involved with that? Um, well, you... and yeah, I knew all. I knew all. The, People, I, I, as I say, I wasn't a big punter. I just tried to get a value. I, I wasn't brave enough to be a big punter to take on people like Stephen Little. But um, he was brave. He was very brave. 
and been very successful for a long time. But now the market's a shadow of what it was. You go racing now, there might only be 10 bookmakers there. There'd be rows and rows of them, and they would all be getting a really good living out of it. In that sense, the game's gone. He's right, Steve Little, the game's gone. Right, on a more cheerful note, we'll go back to we'll go back to when the game wasn't gone. So back to the big your beginning. So where did your interest in horse racing stem from? Uh, I loved. I used to go to the local points. I lived in Dorset. We used to go to the local point to points. I loved it. I loved the glamour of it. I loved the. Uh, Robert Orner became a great friend, as you know. He trained a Gold Cup winner. I backed his first winner he ever rode. In a point to point, it was called Heart of Oak. What a name for a man who had a heart of oak. I had half a crown at eight to one at the Westmoreland point to point. God knows when that was. And we became very good friends. And there was talk about me being a solicitor and then maybe going in the Navy, but that, that was never going to work because I don't like being told what to do. <laughs> so I'd, you know, I'd, I thought quite like to get into racing. I was the wrong shape to be a rider. So I wrote to several racing journalists saying, how would I get into this? And to my amazement, Four of them wrote back, sometimes with two or three pages of, uh, of, of writing, encouraging me and giving me advice, which is really extraordinary when you think about it. And I thought, well, I'm, I'll have a crack at that. And that's what I did. I went, um, I worked for Arthur Budget uh, for a year to learn about the practical side of racing. Uh, it's a complete dog's body there. Uh, I couldn't ride. I couldn't, I couldn't do anything much. I was pretty useless, but... I had a great fun year there, um, and then I got onto a local paper. But while I was with him, he, he, he trained a mare called Gwynmill Girl, who was second in the Oaks while I was there, and who later produced two Derby winners, which he bred, Blakeney and Morstan. So I learned an awful lot there. It was quite entertaining because um, he had won the Lincoln in 1947, long before I was involved, with a horse called Commissar, 58 ran. 58 runners, and it was held at Lincoln in those days. I suppose it was a case of trials to the front, non-trials at the back, but 58. And he told me he had a right touch on that. He was quite wealthy anyway, but that helped him to move to Whatcom, where he trained and where Paul Cole has been so successful since. And while I was there, uh, in the summer of 63, was a great train robbery. And... His star apprentice at the time, budget star apprentice, a guy called Chris Cordry, was a bit of a rascal. And the grain trade robbery happened, and about three weeks later, his father was arrested in Bournemouth. <laughs> Roger John Cordry, he was called, with £250,000 in Scottish white fibres on him. He'd paid, he'd paid his rent in advance. They'd scarpered from Leather Slave Farm, where the gang had all hidden after the great trade robbery. They'd scarpered, and um, anyway, he was caught... And Chris came down to the hospital that morning. He said, they caught my old man this time. It turned out they'd done a trial run on the Brighton train a couple of years before. Anyway, Roger John Cordy was the man who actually physically stopped the train by putting the filter on the lights. And he went to prison, I think, for eight years. And he came out and he was afterwards, he was selling flowers at Charing Cross Station. I've never forgotten it. And another, you spent the night in a van with a shotgun. I'm assuming not sawn off. It wasn't sawn off, no. <laughs> those were... People don't realise that, but there's a lot of deliberate doping. Doping gangs were doing horses left, right and centre, jumping and flat. There's a famous horse called Pincherisco, trained by Noel Merlis. He was a red-hot favourite for the Derby in 1961, and he was done properly, and never, I don't think he ever ran again. And so 
Arthur Budger had a really good two-year-old called Daring Do. He had a bit of an illness during the winter, but he was second or third favourite for the 2,000 guineas. And for the last two nights before he went up to Newmarket, I slept outside his box in a Dormerville with a shotgun. And there was nobody anybody was going to get at him, and I was more terrified probably than anybody who was going to dope him. But there was a very wild, nasty guard dog in the yard. And what I remember most is when Arthur Budget came in the yard the second morning and it attacked him. <laughs> you know, it, but, yeah, that was quite an experience. Well, this, so you then went to work on the racing desk for the Press Association. I mean, that's a bit less exciting, Well, uh, no, I, I had... You, it's very hard to get into... In those days, there were loads of racing journalists, loads of newspapers who employed racing journalists, unlike now. And I, the only way I could see was to go on a local paper. So I did three and a half years on a local paper in South London doing court counsel, murder strikes, football, you name it, everything but racing. The minute I finished my indentures, as they were then called, I went off to Fleet Street to the Press, press Association, which had been a, um, a, a source of racing journalists going back for many years. A lot of the top racing journalists had started there. And they were ba based in Fleet Street, not up in Howden? 85 then. Fleet Street. Uh, they on the same building as Reuters, and they had racing desks all around the country. But within two years, I realised that I was waiting to fill in dead men's shoes. They had people in all the good jobs. I was mad keen. And I thought, I'm going to start. I'm not going to stay here much longer. If I can find a role, I'll go. That year, the Sun became a new newspaper. It had been called something else before, but they decided to change the name. And their front page lead was a slightly bogus story about a, a trainer called Roy Pettit, who had allegedly doped some horses. So they, that was the very first day when the Sun took over from what had been the Daily Herald. And the, the, unbeknown to me, the racing correspondent of the News of the World resigned in protest. It was in the same stable. Everybody heard about this and applied for the job. I, I didn't have a clue, didn't have any contacts. By the time I heard about the job, there'd been about 150 applicants. So I put in an application to be their racing correspondent. And if Betfair had been in play, I'd have been about 500 to 1 and drifting. I, I, didn't, I didn't know many people. But what I had in my favour was I was young, mad keen, and I was prepared to work very hard, where most of the guys who'd applied for the job wanted a nice sinecure, just do a tipping piece once a week and sit on their bums and go drinking every day. That, those were the days of the legendary liquid lunches, oh, weren't they? And very definitely. Day. And by some amazing fluke, Frank Butler, the sports editor of the News of the World, gave me the job. Um, you know... It was, it was circumstance. In, in life, I say I would have been 500 to 1, and I didn't think I had a prayer. But I got the job, and I loved it, and I got to know a lot of people very quickly. I used to go racing, but I'd go back to the office as well. I was, I'd do half a week racing, half a week in the office. Met a lot of people, including a, a very useful, unknown jump jockey called Bob Champion, and I can remember taking him round the printing works showing him how the, showing him on a Saturday night how the, the paper was printed when it was all hot metal. All right, Jonathan. So you're you're twenty four years old. You've bagged a job that one hundred and fifty people wanted. <laughs> 
um, and you found yourself in the press rooms of the of uh, the country's racecourses. Um, uh, other journalists I've spoken to from the time tell me it was like a private sort of club, and uh, everybody had their own seat and all started drinking. And after the first or second race, I mean, how were you treated by the uh, esteemed members of the the press when you first turned up? God, I can't remember now. Um... You've got to remember, the News of the World was the biggest selling newspaper in the world at the time. It's six million copies, and I don't think two million people bought it for their racing, to be honest, but it was an entry for me. The, the press was full of people who had served in the Second World War. There was Colonel Tim, Captain or Colonel Tim Fitzgeorge Parker, Major Roger Mortimer, Lieutenant Colonel Tom Nichols. These were the main writers, so they were a different era to me, and I found them by and large, they were very good. Roger Mortimer was fa fascinating. He he got banged up by the Germans at Dunkirk in 1940 and spent five years as a prisoner of war. And when he came out afterwards, he wanted to be a racing journalist. And he used to cover racing for a magazine that's long gone called The Racehorse. And he used to take the train from Newbury to Exeter and they, with his bike in the back and then cycle from there to Newton Abbott and Buckfast Lee, which is long gone. I mean, that's how keen he was. It's a different world and a different tempo. When I went to the News of the World, every Sunday newspaper had two or three racing correspondents. Every daily had loads of racing correspondents. And there was the Sporting Life and, and the Sporting Chronicle. And they were both selling 150,000 copies each a day or more. And a lovely, another lovely man called Peter Willett, who, who fought in the war, who was a breeding expert, he used to do 4,000 words a day for the Sporting Chronicle. Now there aren't any racing journalists. In 10 years' time, there'll be even less. It's very sad. Racing is not important to most dailies and no Sundays have their own racing writers. It's a completely different world. You were the uh, last of them, weren't you? Possibly. Uh, well, I worked for five Sunday papers and then I ran out of luck. I mean, they do, they do, they, they want somebody, everything seven days a week now. It's in, And a lot of it's online. It can't be much fun. And I worry, you look at, I mean, Marcus Armitage does a very good job, job with the Telegraph, but their sports editor is not interested in racing. The Mail have recently taken on a football, football writer to do some of their features, but I, I, I get the times. Sadly, since Alan Lee left, they let Ralph Scott do the odd piece. Totally wasted talent. He's fantastic and still very keen. He's my generation. He's been a big friend of mine forever. But the newspapers are not interested unless it's a scandal. That's what I found towards the end. They don't want to know a nice feature about a jockey who's come back from injury to, to win the derby. They want a, a nice story about somebody who's been done for excessive use of the whip or a jockey who's on drugs. It's sad. that They just see that as a headline now. And you were then poached, in your words, by the Sunday people. So how would you stood out with the news of the world to be poached? Oh, I can't remember. I must have done a few stories that piqued their interest. Um, I didn't think twice about it. I, I, and I had a lot of nice sports editors, but the sports editor at the... <laughs> Sunday people's called Neville Holfen, who was a true and true Geordie. And when they won the cup, when Sunderland won the cup 1-0, he hurled his typewriter out of the top floor window of Holfen. He was just over, over the moon. He was great to work for, and I repaid him through lots of stories on Bob Champion from the, from the start of his illness to his recovery in America to all the problems that he had. Bob had a lot of physical problems. He, he, he hadn't... The chemotherapy that saved his life 
left him with no feeling in his hands and feet, which is fine if you're a journalist, but not great if you're a jockey and you need to slip reins. When he was in America, he, somebody said one day, it was a hot day and they were outside in his bare feet, and there was a nail sticking out of his foot. Bob couldn't feel it, he had no feel. So to, to come back and be physically able to ride a horse, let alone jump fences, was very difficult for him. And for the first three or four months, it was touch and go, and then he got, got it back. Josh Gifford was wonderful, his trainer, and the Embarikos, Nick Embarikos family. You know, one or two people wanted another jockey. And Josh would say, if you don't like my jockey, you can take your horse away. And they stood 10 square behind Bob until after a few months, he, it all came back. And away we went. He'd been the third best jockey in the list before he got illness. And by the time he won the Grand National, he was back in the groove big time. Well, I mean, the Bob Champion story, that is a fairy tale ending. Correct. But you were already writing this story before all that unfolded. So that really did, you know, that was a dream ending for you as well as it was <laughs> for Bob. Well, we, he and I always used to stay at Liverpool every year. We drive up together and say, I'm going to win the Grand National this year. So come on, Bob, don't be daft. You know, he fell at the first one year, he fell at Beaches. And then he was fifth in, in Red Rum's third Grand National on a 100 to 1 outsider. So he'd had plenty of shots at it. He was a great horseman, Bob. He, he, he was great at getting from one side of the fence to the other, which is fairly important. And he was a very good judge. When he said one would win, it did. And we, were, we went to Ascot, January or February. Alderney, hadn't run for two years. The jockey had been very ill. And he, he ran in a race just to see if he's still OK, because he'd broken down on both front legs while Bob was ill. And almost condemned. Anyway, they won that day, and Bob said to me, if this horse is sound tomorrow morning, he will win the Grand National. Well, call it inside information, but I backed it 33 to 1. I got Julian Wilson to back it at 33 to 1, Braff and a few other pals. And then we got to Cheltenham, and Josh was thinking of running in the Gold Cup. And Bob said, if he runs in the Gold Cup, he won't win the Gold Cup, and he won't win the Grand National. So we got to talk him out of it. So between them, they taught Josh out of running in the Gold Cup, and the rest is history. And you, for your award, won Racing Journalist of the Year that year. I did. Well, it was, it was a big surprise because I was pretty young. And Bob won it for me. Um, it was very strange. They have a lunch every Christmas, which I've seen you at. But it, it was a dreadful day. There was snow everywhere, and only about a third of people turned up. Literally, there was probably 150 out of 450 got there. And I only got there because I, was, I knew I was going to get an award. Otherwise, I wouldn't because there was snow everywhere. Getting to the trains was a nightmare. And it was a long time ago. <laughs> now, you've written about many characters in books that we've already talked about and many, many more in articles. So is there anybody that really sticks out for you that was most impressive? Oh, I've liked... I, I'm, I think jump jockeys, as a breed, are wonderful. Uh, um, I've never met a bad one. They know for sure it's not. A qu it's a question of when rather than if they're going to get smashed up. Um, and I find people like John Frankham and AP for two inspirational. Uh, when I got involved with the Injured Jockeys Fund, I knew how good John Frankham was behind the scenes. He would never tell you what he'd been doing, but I got to know how good he was. And if I rang him or AP up, I said, could you come and see so-and-so? They'd always do it, and they didn't want any publicity. Uh, um, 
There's a friend of mine called Wayne Burton who got paralysed in a fall at Exeter. Probably shouldn't have been riding. He'd never ridden a winner, never going to ride a winner. And I got both of them to come and see him with me in Hungerford at the flat where he was living in a wheelchair. They both spent about an hour and a half with him. They both talked to him as equals. And by the time they left, I wouldn't have been surprised if he'd stood up and walked out with them. They were just brilliant with him. And so I'm a sucker for proper jump jockeys. And you've got involved with the Injured Jockeys Fund where you were involved with it for a long time. Yeah, I, uh, Simon Tyndall approached me one day in the tote kiosk at Stratford. He said, would I like to be involved? I said, yes, I'd, I'd love to do that because I was friendly with a lot of them anyway. And it's been the most worthwhile thing I've done in my life. I ended up as vice chairman with Bruff as chairman. It's a fantastic organisation. Unfortunately, it's necessary. But people are extremely generous and we now have these three hubs around the country. We've got the Peter O'Sullivan House in Newmarket was the last one to open before that. Jack Berry House up in Malton and Oaksey House in Lambourne. And it's been a huge, huge success. People are very generous to the IGF and they needed to spend the money that they had and they spent it very wisely. So you, you have the modern jockeys going in there like Holly and Tom, they work away on their fitness like mad, which we didn't really anticipate. But also a lot of retired jockeys, people who've had injuries, can go there and, and meet up. The, the general, there's regular meetings and they all get together. It's just a brilliant idea. And it was one that was hatched by Jack Berry with John Oaksey and Bruff 15 years ago. OK, now just going back to your writing career so i've got still where you went to the sunday express the sunday times the mail on sunday so you, you went to a lot of um titles a bit like the grand national i mean <laughs> why did you why did you keep hopping from one to the other well one what if somebody asks you from another paper you, you you're pretty much guaranteed a pay rise and i knew the sports editor of uh, the, the sunday express very well peter watson and he like my work, and he, he, uh, my, my great friend Neville Holtham, I think, had retired at, at the people. Anyway, Peter persuaded me to go there, and I had a lovely time for about four or five years, maybe more. I used to get a whole page on a full broadsheet every Sunday. I was working for the BBC at the time as well. It, it was a great period for me, and then the Express became one of the first to go seven days a week, and that didn't work so well, and they got rid of. First of all, they got rid of John Garnsey, and then they got rid of my chum, John de Morival, who was just me. And I was suddenly having to work a lot harder for, th for a newspaper than I had before. And I probably didn't have the temperament for it. So that came to an end. And then I, um, I went to the Sunday Times for a few years. But the sports editor and I weren't really on the same wavelength. So that came to an end. And then I, I got hired by the Mail on Sunday and had a very good spell there again for a long time. But eventually they came to be a seven-day-a-week newspaper and I could see what was coming and I don't envy the Marcus Townsends of this world anything at all because it, it's a slog. It's, you're dealing with people who don't know about racing. They all think they can look up on Google and know as much as you do who've been talking to the people and doing the interviews. 
not it wouldn't be a fun job now. So you've officially retired? Well, not quite. Um, I still do I, I do bits and pieces for Paul Nichols. I do his website. I do his Betfair column. I help two or three other trainers on their websites. And it's lovely because you're dealing with people who actually appreciate what you do for them. There's no hassle. There's nobody ringing you about two hours later saying, this is rubbish, rewrite it or what have you. They're just grateful for what you do. Um, so I've had a lovely time in racing. My job's been my hobby and vice versa. So, but I mean, racing journalists never retire, do they? So is there anything, you've got anything still planned? Is there any, another book you'd like to ghostwrite or anything? I, I, I'm doubtful if I do another book. Uh, people have said I should do a book. I remember spending a day with John Frank and going around to see various of our people, um, various injured jockeys, uh, who we call beneficiaries. And I still do bits and pieces for the injured jockeys fund. And we talked in the car all day. We, we went to see Robert Orner, amongst others. And he said, you should really write a book. But I think the moment's passed. Uh, and one of the problems is people don't buy books these days like they used to. Um, Paul Nichols' book sold very well. It sold upwards of 40,000 hardback. That's a lot of books. And it came out in paperback. But nowadays, they don't sell so well. And publishers are a bit wary about doing them. During the pandemic, a lot of my chums did do books. Jeff Lester did one, Colin McKenzie did, and there were a few others, and they were good fun, but they weren't. there was no money in them. And if you, the way I do a book, it's jolly hard work, a lot of research, a lot of writing. You want to be rewarded for it. Okay, and that's, that's one thing you don't get on these interviews, but we've all been rewarded by your, uh, your story. <laughs> so, uh, Jonathan Powell, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.